Man, I, yeah, I am like, quite nervous, eh? Um, which is like unusual for someone who is up here often enough and, uh, and doing the worshipy bits and pieces and stuff. So I really appreciate the, the hearty welcome and encouragement. It's like makes a big difference, eh? So um, kia ora for that. So um, I've kind of... Uh, is, is, part, of, part of this evening was, was going to be, like, originally I was just meant to kind of do a bit of an extended good story, and there was going to be someone coming from out of town to do some of the talking. So this is effectively an extended, extended good story. Uh, so uh, that's what you're in for this evening. So I guess I'm going to be trying to tie in this theme of rebuilding the ruins, and that's kind of the, the journey that, our, that the whole diocese, on, diocese is on at the moment. And so um, I'm, I guess I'm just going to be using um, my story um, and my kind of a testimony of, of uh, my, my history and my life, and then trying to tie in some of my own kind of passions around church history and bringing those things together to build a bit of a picture, and then um, hopefully bring some kind of challenge at the end to invite people into um, around uh, being part of positive change in the future. Cool. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I guess I would love to introduce myself to all of you who don't know me. My name's Ty. Um, and uh, a little bit of a, a thing about my family. So um, I'm married to Zoe, who's down the back there. So, <laughs> closest family member. Um, and uh, in terms of my fucker papa, um, I, uh, my dad is Steve. He is from, uh, well, he's Kiwi, but we have fucker papa mostly to, to Wales. So there's heaps of Welsh in us. Um, like we had in probably in the late mid mid 1800s, we had like three generations of whānau come over and stay here and you know, permanently here now in the ground. So um, that's the, that's the dad's side of the family. <laughs> on um, on mum's side of the family, we have um, a bit of a mixed whakapapa there. So um, I'm really blessed to say that I am Māori. So I'm um, tangata whenua. I come from the land here. And so my mother's mum's side, we whakapapa to um, the deep south, to like bluff into um, areas down there, um, the Catlins and... There's like there's about eight or so marae that we're connected to, and then on her father's side, we're connected to um, Te Hoki or just below um, Hastings, um, and our marae there is called Kahura Anaki, and um, that's where Mum's dad is buried in the Urupa there, um, and so kind of have this mixture, you know, both of we kind of hold I hold these kind of things together of both. You know, obviously I'm look Pākehā, so that's just how things are. But I hold that tension of both having whakapapa um, that is Pākehā and whakapapa that is Māori and exist, well, I'm trying to exist now in both of those worlds as I grow and learn. Um, the rest of my family, I have an older brother um, who lives down in Christchurch called Reuben. I have a younger brother called Jamin who's just recently moved um, to Palmerston North to be with um, his kid and his partner. Um, so, yeah, Jamin and... Oh, what's her name? Joey and Theo. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and then I have a younger sister, Kelsey, 
and um, and she uh, has a little pug called Gilbert, and then um, and uh, then we have a foster sister called Izzy. So there is a picture of my whanau. Um So I guess um, I, I want to tell you my, a bit of my story and where I come from, and I guess I, I think of I think of my story in kind of three distinct kind of phases, um, like a formation starting. In, um, in the, the formative years. So to give you some context of the time frame I was born into, um, like back in the 80s, there was this um, big thing happening called like a revival. And New Zealand's church scene was kind of um, getting a bit of a revamp um, towards Pentecostalism and dudes like Smith Wigglesworth were coming out of the woodwork from the UK and others, many others. And um, this kind of massive move of the spirit happened, and this massive kind of Pentecostalism kind of like happened, <laughs> and um, and my parents were part of that wave of revival of Pentecostalism, and they found themselves part of this church called New Life, and um, and uh, in Christchurch, and they met and they got married, and then they started having babies. And, um, and and that is the context I was born into. So, um, so I was kind of born into this Pentecostal setting, and um, and a lot of my like history and my understanding of church, particularly in those in the early years of life, was in that kind of space. And so there was a lot of hakashabas, and there were lots of people like kind of praying for you, pushing on your forehead firmly enough that you might fall over. But it was the power of the Spirit, of course. Um, that's a bit cynical, but I'm sure... I mean, I, but the reality was, there were, there were good sides, and there were, there were downsides, right? So there was parts of it that were real, and the move of the Spirit was real, and that's like, I know that that's what my parents were saved into, and that's what I was... That's, that was the formation of my faith, you know, it was in that space of knowing the power of the Spirit, and being and moving in the power of the spirit as well. So um, yeah, so my dad, um, he he was like he's he's an evangelist, right? So I, I kind of people often say to me that I'm like my dad, <laughs> like really closely like my dad, and um, and so I, I can currently I can like draw really clear parallels to where my dad my to where like. I was like the space and time that I was born into and where I am at the moment. And so at, at the time when I was kind of growing up, Dad was in this group called OAC, called Open Air Campaigners. And they would go around and they would preach. And there were parts of that that were not great, where he would be considered these days as a Bible basher. Um, so he was up on a stepladder in Cathedral Square in Christchurch, arguing with people, but also trying to, like, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people as well. Perhaps in ways that I would feel uncomfortable with, or you and I might feel uncomfortable with, but that's what, that's what he felt called to do. And so um, some of uh, Dad, used to, Dad used to tell me the story um, where he would, he would kind of preach for a bit, you know, maybe he was arguing with the wizard for a bit, and then he would, like, he'd be talking to a couple of like skinheads with steel caps and 
I wouldn't have known the danger that that posed to his physical health, but, um, but he would finish up, and he'd be like, son, go sing a song. And, <laughs> and apparently, I would jump up on dad's stepladder, and I would sing songs, you know, like Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, and, and Jesus Loves the Little Children. So, um, you know, I've been, I've been sharing the gospel since 92. <laughs> So classic, in that kind of um, time frame, in that context, we were kind of fed a pretty healthy diet of Christian stuff, Christian content, um, whether it was like, you know, good Bible verses, you know, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, or whether it was like the Left Behind series, Youth Edition, or, uh, you know... The, the, the donut man, life without Jesus is like a donut, with a hole in the middle of your heart. Um, <laughs> these classic things. Does anyone else know about that one? Yes. Oh, yeah. Shop Lear, Ari, let's get it. Everyone else is a bit younger, eh? Um, yeah, and so, um, so that's, that's part of the story. <sighs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Mm. Heart's beating quite fast. Um, so, yeah, that's that's good. Um, so eventually, mum and dad were asked to go out and um, kind of pastor a church in this little town called Darfield. Um, anyone heard of Darfield before? Yep. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's a little country town on the way out towards the hills <coughs> um, down south, Canterbury. And, um, and that, was, that was kind of where... We did life from about, I don't know, six or seven, six to towards young, young adulthood. And um, I guess that time was kind of, that was a space of formation that, um, like all of those things I said before, about, there was lots of Christian content. We did a lot of, um, um, like, good, good family things like hospitality and mum and dad were taught us good hospitality by doing, like, there were always people around the house on Sundays after church. There was always um, people over. And I didn't really get that we were poor, you know? Um, I didn't quite understand that we were, like, crammed into this little house, this little three-bedroom house with four people, or six people, by the, by the time the other two came along. And, um, but, like, there was always a, um, there was always, an, there was always generosity to, for people, and that was, like, this just how I was, how I was brought up, you know, it's just normal, and it wasn't, it's not until reflection now, when I look back at our house that would fail the warm homes kind of standards, you know, and blah, 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 and that's, and that's the context of, of things, and um, I guess towards the, towards the kind of teenage phase of that, of that time frame, I, I, I was starting to feel a little bit stifled, <laughs> so you can imagine, like, um, that 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 time frame is kind of framed by um, like quite conservative values in our home. Like it wouldn't have been a safe place for for queer people. It wouldn't have been a safe place to for for, for many things. Like my, yeah, the values that are held are interesting. <laughs> um, and and so I I guess I came to, to to teenage years and I was at high school and I was hanging out with my mates. I was. Um, 
And the, the ways that my parents tried to uh, lead us in life towards that later stage of teenagehood was like uh, quite stifling on a young dude who was outgoing, who was kind of, I was like inviting people in all the time. I was wanted to be around. I wanted to hang out with my friends and my mum my was quite protective. And so, um, I hope you not miss anything. Yeah, I guess what, I, what I've written here is that I, there's, a, there's a sense that I, I wanted to be Christian and I wanted the, some of the parts of, of that way of life, but I really wanted to cleave from my parents' understanding of what that was. And, and so because of that tension and being a teenager and having hormones and all that stuff, um, eventually, um, when I turned 16, um, I was listening to Black Sabbath one day and <laughs> in my room. My mum came in, because Ruben, my old brother, had told on me. I was thinking, Black Sabbath. And, um, and mum comes in and is like, Black Sabbath? This is the devil's white music. And, um, and so that was kind of like the, the height of things. Mum doesn't sound like that. She's a wonderful woman. <laughs> um, and, um, and, uh, and I guess eventually this ultimatum came to me at 16. And mum was like, you either got to kind of abide by the rules you got to stick to them, you got to be under our roof, you got to do the way things the way we see it, or you can go. And, um, and me just being kind of like, oh yeah, there's two options, and number one doesn't sound good, so I'll go with two. And um, well, that sounds pretty harsh, eh, but I just decided to go. And so I moved in with a friend um, around the corner, still in Darfield, and, uh, and kind of just kind of tried to make my way in the world for a year. And um, if you can imagine, the first thing I did was I read the Harry Potter series. Because <laughs> <laughs> only after book four was it available by that time. So, but man, I read it so quick. I read it and I was like, they were like, what are you doing in there? And they obviously were a bit worried about me, but I'm just reading Harry Potter. Man. Like, I'm, I'm still only two days out of Christian house, you know, I'm not like drinking out there, right? I'm so So, so here, I, here I was, I was like, and I, and I wanted to individuate from, from, from things. And, um, and this was the first time I had like to, uh, a look at things that were different, you know, ways that were different. I understood people's families were not like, I understood that my parents were married and they were still together and that was normal for me. But I knew that there were kids around town who didn't have t families that were together. I knew that there were families that were broken and, and different to mine. And so I walked into my best friend's family and, and, they, were, and they were separated. They, were two, they had two separate parents, you know. So like one parent was on one side of town, one parent was on the other side of town. And somehow <laughs> they managed to put me up with a room in each house, and I was just kind of, um, <laughs> and I was, and so I just kind of went with my friend in the, in the building, and, I, uh, and it was like my last year of high school, which I failed miserably at, and, and, and I just went between these two houses. Um, it was really interesting, um, because I was still like quite spiritually attuned to things, and so... Um, they had this, the, the dad of that family had a tradition of like Friday night fish and chips in a horror movie. And, um, and so I would like 
be dreading Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, they're the worst. And we'd like, I'd like get home and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I would like, we'd watch a horror movie and I'd just be like, crap in my pants. Um, because I'm just not used to this kind of thing. And then I'd like kind of like just go to my room afterwards and I would just like pray. And I would just like, I was just like, save me from the demons. Um, and, you know, um, and I guess that kind of petered out over, the, over a while and I kind of got used to it, but um, I still don't like horror movies no. today, but not a good time. Um, for me, personally, um, there's not no, no judgment on anyone like Scott or anything. Um, um, yeah, so um, after this, I, uh, I moved to town. I was like, the, the rule was if you don't finish, you know, don't do well at school, you, what, what's the point of us hosting you? So I moved, I failed school, moved to town, and I uh, moved in with my nana and, um, in, in Christchurch, and I decided to study at this place called Vision College and do a music kind of certificate diploma thing. And, um, and I found myself in the space where it had like a Christian kind of undercurrent of things, and there was like people there learning some theology bits and pieces, and people doing music, and it was kind of centered around contemporary music, but there was like this Christian influence, and... Um, and I know that um, throughout this whole time, now looking back, that like my mum and many others in their church and people at Vision College I'd become friends with, the whole time they were praying for me, you know, that I would come back to some form of faith. Yeah, and so it was, it was really interesting that even in amongst that kind of period of time where I would say, you know, like from my understanding of that time, I had backslidden, you know, into like a debaucherous, some type of lifestyle or whatever, um, that, you know, God was always calling me back. And, um, and like, interestingly, that was the time where like my, 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 one of my friends who I'm still friends with today, he like invited me to like write songs with him. And so, and, and they were like worship songs. They wanted, he wanted them for his church. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But I had like the language, you know, I had like this kind of in, entire life background of being brought up like in this stuff. And so like I started writing these songs with him that were like, that were, that were the precursors to what I do now, you know, to what I write today. Yeah. Um, so somewhere close to that kind of time frame, um, I, I was at an Easter camp one year um, for some stupid reason. For some reason. Because my mum invited me. Um, to, she was leaving a youth group at the time. She needed extra people. So I went along. And, um, and there's, there's, they just did this crazy thing that, that year with like this kind of grave situation where they like actually dug a grave outside the big tent. And, um, and then they like, and, they, and it just had this narrative around that, you know, obviously Jesus dies and comes back to life. But it just hit home for me. And like I really had like a significant revelation that Christ like died for me. Like, um, and yeah, and that, that, was, that was kind of what, what it was. And then soon after that, I had like a bit of a, a, a reconciliation kind of journey of some description and came back to uh, some kind of form of faith 
and found my way to a local church called South City, um, down south in Christchurch, and um, and then kind of spent seven years there. And that, that was kind of my like formative Christian life. Um, after the earthquakes, we kind of mer- we merged with the C3 church, the local C3 church. We had a similar enough DNA that we could like kind of merge them together. And so from that, that whole time, we were like, I was kind of, that was where I learned to worship lead. That was where I learned to, um, to, to understand my faith a bit better, to individuate and to like understand my faith to some degree in a way that was different from my parents. And, um, and it was great. It was a great time of life, and I, I really appreciate that, that, that time frame. Um, and, yeah, I guess one, a couple of things that stood out from that time frame was, um, like, I had a dis- like I, I can look back now, and I can see that I had a discomfort with, like, that, with, like praying out loud. And so, like, I, it's like, I found that, like, I just didn't feel comfortable with it all the time, and I couldn't get used to all the, just, Lord, yes, we just need you. We need you to come. And I, I, just, I just found that I wasn't very good on the spot at praying, and, like, and, I, and, and that was like counter to what was normal around me, and, I, and that was just a noticing. Um, and for myself, personally, there was a, there was a lack of, like, of, of to my own journey. So there was no kind of like, I was like, I was kind of ingrained into this format of like belief systems and blah, blah, blah. And, but there was no, like I found that I didn't have a huge depth to, 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 of understanding for the, the why behind the, the practices. And, um, and around that same kind of time, um, I, I got introduced to this book called The Irresistible Revelation, Revolution um, by um, Shane Claiborne. And it kind of messed with my like understanding of faith a bit, eh? Where I am, because you know he kind of talked about this way of living that was like for your neighbour and for the poor, and it was like, oh, it was like a sudden like the spirit brought alive for me something in that, and um, and like since then I, I like I haven't been able to look back from that. I haven't been able to like go back to a faith that doesn't include some form of that thing uh, from those stories that was told and um, and there was, there was all these things that were kind of coming together at the same time right so read this book went on like a mission kind of awareness trip where we um, it wasn't like one of those ones where you just go and hang out with the, the kids and take photos of them it was like a here's the real work here's the work that's being done like like we need help and, and money and it was like, and it was just a, like a rude awakening to, to, to the realities of, of some of the, the stuff that's happening out there, you know? And, um, and there was this dude, who many of you know, called Spanky, and, and he was like doing this cool stuff called the Society of Salt and Light, and there's heaps of young people kind of going along, people my age, and he was really engaging them and talking about faith. And I found myself um, at this weekend thing um, up the like the coast of the South Island um, and for the, like it was the first time that I interacted with like Anglican or a different different forms of contemplative practice and so <laughs> real random but like at the time Bishop Victoria was in Christchurch 
And, um, and so I kind of went along to this contemplative practice called Centering Prayer, and it happened to be in a yurt, and Bishop Matthews was kind of like sitting in the middle of the yurt, and then all these people, like these sweaty young adults, were like crammed in, and were kind of crammed in there, and I actually hated it, eh? Um, which is funny to think back on now that we, um, Zoe and I, are like doing silent retreats where we actually lead these things, but, but like, it, it's, it's a funny to look back on. Um, and then, um, and then that, that, the evening of that, um, this dude came along, this kind of barefoot, dread-headed dude called Justin, and, um, and he led night prayers for all of these people. And this is a pretty ecumenical group of people, right? So this is a really good picture of the young adults in Christchurch, right? So this is like across the board, Baptists, Pentecostals, Anglicans, all of them, all of the young adults were there. And, um, and he led this thing, and it like... It was like my first look at, at, at a different form of prayer. You know, I was talking about how like, I, I didn't really, I found that discomfort with praying out loud. And some of that will be my own crap, you know, with, and, but some of it will be like the, the way that the Spirit, or the, the way that I connect with God. And so I was introduced to this way of prayer that I saw for the first time. And I'd heard about it through like the Shane Claiborne book. And I'd heard about this ways of rhythms of prayer, these threads started to pull together. And um, and I had a great friend at the time who had a dad who was a priest, an Anglican priest, and um, and so we kind of tried to build these rhythms of evening prayer into our daily life. So we were just these four dudes who were flattening in this house together, and we just tried it out, and we tried to see if it worked, and we got a few bros from down the road to come over, and we started doing that kind of thing. And this all kind of kind of came to a head in, um, in trying to start like a house that was like community focused, neighbor focused. And I guess like if you're just one person alone and nobody's with you, it's impossible to build something like that. And so kind of had this mammoth task ahead of me to try and do this thing. But I, you know, just tried to slog on and do it. And um, it didn't end up that we would do prayers. No one was really that keen on it. I tried to like bring people into the heart of it, but kind of failed. And it just ended up being like a youth drop-in centre with a skateboarding ramp out the back, which was cool, but not quite what we're going for. Yes. So around that time, this, um, the, I, I met this woman, this girl, um, who I thought was cool, and we had similar kind of understandings of um, we, were, we were on a wavelength with, with caring for people, um, and we were on a wavelength with worship stuff, and pretty quickly we got together got engaged and were married and, um, and and so uh, and then we were kind of we kind of tried to do the house thing and we tried to build this community and and then we were, we were pretty keen to to try something different we were pretty we came to this place where we were like you know what it's not really happening here in Christchurch our friend Christoph is moving up to Wellington to start this church called the story vineyard and we're keen to get involved so Moved up to Wellington, up, turned our lives, got up here and just got into life in Wellington and, um, and through kind of lots of different circumstances and um, bits and pieces, um, we, um, we separated sometime in there, somewhere. <laughs> and, um, and that's another kind of significant part of the story. And I guess we... The, the, story, the story vineyard was 
well, it wasn't a hugely, um, it wasn't a place of huge provision for care for us. And so I, I kind of, it was one of those spaces again where if we're building in this theme of rebuilding the ruins, you could say that um, that was a time for me of, of deep kind of hurt and, and ruin. And, um, and so I found myself kind of flailing a bit and all over the place. And I was kind of in Wellington and I was like, do I go back to Christchurch, to my family and to all the people I know, or what do I do? And, um, and so I heard through the grapevine that this dude called Shane Claiborne was coming to Blueprint Church um, to do this summit or something. Is that what it is? Hope Summit or something? Hope Symposium. And I was like, oh, damn. Oh, that's right. And like, he had this glimmer of, of something, you know, that was there. And so I kind of made my way down to the waterfront for a walk. And I was like, do I want to go back to church? I want to go back into a place like that. And, um, and I was walking along, and I saw these two kind of guys. They were just kind of there, they were walking along in front of me. And I was like, man, they look like, kind of like hippies, eh? They're kind of weird. And I was very, very judgy. Very judgy. Like, like awfully judgy. Um, and I was going along, and it turns out it was, um, it was Scott and Shane. <laughs> Which is hilarious, and I kind of, uh, I kind of walked by, and I actually like managed to strike up a conversation. I'm not sure if you remember that. But, yeah, that's right. And uh, and came up, and um, I guess like I kind of haven't looked back since then. Um, I like I came in, and um, and Blueprint really became a space for me of like healing. And, and shelter in a, in a time of like massive um, kind of turmoil, you might say. Um, and um, I really, really love the imagery that Blueprint uses to like name the, 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 what, what the church is like, you know, with the harakeki image of, of having the, I don't know the names of the shoots, but you know, the little baby shoots in the middle that need protecting, and then the medium ones that are kind of doing good stuff, they're kind of learning and getting there, and then they've got your big guys out the sides who are like, like flapping about in the wind, taking the beatings, you know? And, and I needed to be one of the little baby shoots for a while. And this, and this was a space where that was okay. And um, it was a safe space for me to doubt, and it was a safe place for me to like wrestle with, um, with my faith and to, to rebuild it, you know? Because it it's hard after going through something like that. And, um, and I was extremely attracted to like community life and, and rhythms of prayer because I had so desperately tried to build something like that in Christchurch and failed miserably. And here I was just able to like settle into the slipstream of what was already happening here. Um, the the co-couple was already existing and all they had to do was kind of like jump in. And so I'm so grateful for that. And, um, he, and he, here I am, right? So we're, we're two, two, three, maybe three years on now, and um, this is a, a tūranga waiwai for me. This is a place where I can stand tall and where I can preach for the first time and be encouraged, even though I'm nervous as heck. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's... Oh, am I, how am I doing for time? Just keep going, bro. Oh, okay. Because... Um, 
that's that's like that's kind of all I had prepared for like my part of the story. Um, and as you know, like I'm here, married to the wonderful Zoe, and have a wonderful life doing community together with with people here. So um, I, I guess I want to pivot now to another space that has kind of been quite inspiring for me. So my story of rebuilding ruins and rebuilding life is it kind of parallels with the interest I have in church history and New Zealand history in particular. And so I wanted to tell you a few stories um, that relate to our, well, if you identify as being part of Blueprint and being Anglican, and um, then it's part of our whakapapa. So there are two stories uh, that I want to bring to your attention. One is like literally going to be like reading a little excerpt. excerpt. What's, that, what's that word? Excerpt. Excerpt. From this book. The other one is about this book, Korti. Um, but, but before that, I just wanted to draw your attention to this, oh, uh, this great thing that happened. So in the early 1800s, obviously New Zealanders, well, Aotearoa, is um, people have got some eyes, eyes on and uh, figuring out what this place is like. And there's been some interactions between Māori and European people. And, uh, and we kind of bring in the story with this fellow called Samuel Marsden. And uh, many of you will know some of the roots of the story. So um, hopefully we'll flesh it out a few bit more. So Samuel Marsden was this kind of priesty chaplain fella in Paramata in, Paramata in Sydney. And he was... He lived there, and he had kind of been doing some like thinking about New Zealand, and he thought that New Zealand was going to be the next big place to to kind of spread the gospel. Um, he didn't really know how that was going to happen, but he was interested, and I think he may, might have come once or something for some reason. On the other side, we have this uh, Māori chief, this um, from Ngāpuhi, called Ruatara, and. Um, at the time, I think it was King George III was um, king um, of all the colonies and whatnot. And, um, and so Ruatara was this big-time chief, and he really wanted to connect with this king across the water. And so he jumped on this boat on a whaling ship and effectively spent like four years going around the world, um, kind of making his way and like working for his passage to get to England so that he could connect with this king dude across the water. And he never got there. So he got to England, but he was never able to have an audience with the king. So he never actually like, grasped the thing that he wanted when he spent four years um, looking for it. Um, he wasn't treated very well um, on the boats, so he wasn't like looked after super well. He was, like I said, he was paying for his passage by working. So you, got, you get sick and you're just another body, right? So they, they don't have much time for you. And so um, eventually he makes his way back to Sydney, where Marsden lives, and he's in a bad way. And, and Marsden connects with him, finds him somehow by chance and connects with him and, uh, and offers for him to stay with Marsden for eight months. Well, just stay with him. And it just happens to be for eight months in the end. And they strike up a relationship, and they they build kind of some connection. And he te he teaches the Rotara all these kind of methods of farming and putting seeds in the ground and different ways of doing things. And then eventually, um, Marston, um, well, Rotara, through whatever means it is, 
is eventually invited to come back, and Uluotana makes it back, and, and it kind of culminates in this service in 1814. And so 1814 on Christmas Day um, in Rangihaua, in the Bay of Islands, Oihi Bay, um, which is a space where many of us just kind of came back from recently, on Waitangi um, week, we were up there. It's part of the pilgrimage we do, is um, part of the learning the stories of the land. And um, I think there's an important kind of definition of what happened there to like talk about. And so um, people often talk about how Samuel Marsden preached the gospel for the first time um, to Māori people who only spoke Māori, right? But actually, because of this like relationship that he had with the Singapore chief, Ruatara, he was able to preach the good news or the message of Jesus to these people, but actually it was Ruatara who preached the good news to Māori for the first time. Um, and so, so Māori hear the gospel from the mouth of a Māori. Um, and yeah, so that's, so that's the first thing. It's a really big event and, um, and uh, you know, like when Kideon and um, a few of those others were up here recently, um, they kind of sang that song that and it's like that kind of moving side to side thing and making space for, for, for people and it's a significant event because Māori just didn't, didn't just like accept it, you know, kind of thing. They actually made space for it um, and, the, and it was, there was meaningfulness to it. It was like, a, um, yeah, so that's that. So just to give you some more context of what was happening after that. So pretty much post that, a bunch of mission schools were well, the first mission school in, um, in um, the Bay of Islands was established. And I think it's like 18. Now, Puhi were pretty awesome. They had done some pretty cool stuff, well, gnarly stuff actually, where they had um, they had defeated a lot of people, people groups, and they had brought a bunch of, um, we, not slaves as we understand them today, but they brought a bunch of um, slaves back um, to, to the Bay of Islands. And this just so happened to be the place where they were building this mission school. And so in that space, there was all these people who were, who were starting to learn about faith. So they were, they were like really intensively going through like catechism and learning about like the details of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? So we're not talking about just like coming to church on a Sunday and hear a sermon. We're talking like school day kind of vibes where they're like taught like extensively about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so out of the space, these, um, this group of people pop up, these native teachers called Kaifakako. So there's heaps of these um, teachers, like these native teachers who are learning the gospel story, but a lot of them actually don't have a way to get back to their people groups because they're slaves. And so somewhere in amongst there, um, these, the, the kind of kaupapa of Christianity of like, release the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, liberty for those who are oppressed kind of comes through and a lot of these kind of slaves are freed and they kind of just naturally go back to their homes and these people are like equipped with the gospel of Jesus to, t to like tell their own people about what's going on. And um, Hidden Nikar in one of his articles um, writes that in 1844 in New Zealand there were only 11 European missionaries 
but there were 295 kaifakako, like around the North Island and all around the place, like spreading the gospel of Jesus, which is pretty amazing. And so we have a story to tell. So I think it's quite important um, with this reading. Like, it's old. And by old, I mean, there are bits in there that people will be quite uncomfortable with, um, with how he kind of perceives people and explains their appearance. But it's, a, it's actually quite, there are bits of this which are quite life-giving as well, because it's really interesting to see um, like what's happening. So just to give you some context, Bishop William Williams, who's the brother of Henry Williams, who was the dude who did the Treaty of Waitangi, is in Waiapu, which is the diocese in the Hawke's Bay, so it covers from about like Waipukuro right up through to Gizzi. Um, and he is working with the people group there. And he comes across this kind of service that's happening. And like he he didn't start this church. Um, the Kaifakako did. So here we go. To go back, however, Sunday evening was closing in when we were rather startled by the sound of a most melodious bell. It was simply a musket barrel hung from the branch of a tree and struck with a stone. But the effect was more musical than the ringing of many a bell I have since heard. One of the most astonishing effects, however, was that on its first stroke, all the dogs around made for the bush, howling and yelping as if they were possessed. Next day, I saw perhaps as wonderful a congregation as ever was assembled for Christian worship, but first a word about the church. It was a very fine specimen of Māori architecture, capable of holding more than a thousand people unseated, and with beams and rafters which divided roof and sides into so many panels that were painted with kōkowai, which is red ochre, and pricked, it, pricked out with a pattern of white. An hour before the Sunday service, one could see great preparations for the ceremony were going on. Red ochre for the face, shark oil for the hair were much in requisition. The least tag of European costume was utilised. Whether a jacket was worn as trousers, or trousers as a jacket, was altogether a matter of taste, and no one's fashion disturbed in the least the gravity of his neighbours. Many of them thought it was highly proper that they should be armed with books. It might be an old ship's almanac, or a castaway novel, or even a few stitched leaves of old newspaper. What did it matter? A book was a book, and everyone knew that to hold a book was part of the ceremony in this new karakia. Presently, a bell began to ring and the dogs began to howl, and on all sides was a grave and quiet movement towards the house of assembly. We gave them time to dispose of themselves before we entered the church, and our first surprise was to see two ugly old savages, nearly naked, plastered with red ochre and reeking with shark oil from head to foot at the sides of each door, brandishing a murderous club, and as far as looks went, threatening to brain any disturber of the ceremonies, be it man, woman, or child. They were doorkeepers of the sanctuary with their main office, but their main office was to brain any dog who dared to put his nose inside the door. Uh, um, so, the actual service. Mr. Williams, this is talking about William Williams, went to the pulpit and after a few minutes gave out the Māori version of with one consent, let all the earth that's him. It was then a common custom for the leader to sing the first line by himself and then the people joined in with a roar. Mr. Williams struck up the Old Hundredth, Old Hundredth being 
Praise God from the moon, let him come and him and wait to see him and open him and go and come and come and say, Holy Ghost. But that was it. Like the reality of music is, uh, and historically is that many different sets of words were put to like tunes, right? So Old Hundredth is like this classic. And so it's interesting that we use Old Hundredth for like singing the doxology. And back in the 1840s, it's being used for other tunes. Um, but when he got to the second line, not a soul fell into tune. Bummer. And, <laughs> and on all that sea of upturned faces, there was a look of blank surprise and unmistakable disgust. Um, the the, the Kaifakako, however, rose to the occasion and stepping up to the pulpit said, They don't know their tune, so let me start one that they can sing. So he made his start, and every face began to lighten. With the sound like thunder, they took the second line out of the teacher's mouth. And as it were, carried off in a roar. So the idea of like sharing that with you is to kind of like give you a picture of, of what was going on at the time. And uh, the second quick story to tell you is about this fellow, Tekoti. And so he was, um, he was one of these dudes who was stuck at one of, well, stuck. He was at one of these mission schools. And so he was like learning the depth of um, the Christian story and, and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And he was also like in that space of holding this kind of tension of, of being someone of significance in his tribe. Who, so by the time he was back and able to like share, he, he was seeing um, like this disenfranchisement of Māori people and their land and how it was being stolen from them and how it was like shady deals that were like people that were, that were losing their land. And so he kind of became a bit of a rebellious bro and ended up um, being sent to the Chathams um, with a big old group of people um, as, as a prison, effectively. Um, and so he, um, so he kind of rebelled once he was on the Chathams and kind of made his, like, kind of stole off with the ship and about 200 or something other people. And they made their way back um, and kind of landed close to the Hawke's Bay and slowly, slowly made their way back over towards the Taranaki. And um, that's where yeah, that thing comes in. So, um, I do this thing where I go and take photos of churches and find out their histories. And there's this church in a little town called Porangaho um, in the Hawke's Bay. And there's a church there called St. Michael's and All Angels. And in this church, there's a piece of stained glass in the window that's a memorial to this dude who was part of the constabulary that was chasing Te Korti. And so, this bro from lower kind of hasting, like, well, Hawke's Bay area, kind of joined this constabulary force to kind of attack these Māori who were, um, you know, try, you know, they were escaped from the Chathams and heading over to Taranaki, and, um, and he was killed in the process, and so he gets the stained glass window that remains to this day um, in that church, and so there's this weird tension, eh, of like, of our, of our whakapapa as Anglicans, of like having both the oppressors, like, like, in windows, um, and then also, like Te Kōti, who he actually came back and he kind of he established the Lingatū Church, which, which was like one of the first like indigenous expressions of a Christian like faith, and went on to do. And like he's still still influential today. We still have like a whole like the particularly in the Tikanga Māori strand of the Anglican Church, there is like a whole like theology around what he the stuff that he kind of 
wrote and brought out and how people are using that theology to build a significant like new um, picture of what church can be like, right? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to, I guess my, my purpose was to kind of bring these stories together so that we could think about how um, our whakapapa is fraught with both the stories of like, of good things where these wonderful people like, like where the Māori spread the gospel hugely significantly for a long period of time between themselves where it's just like the gospel went like wildfire, you know, um, and it has its roots in somewhat in, in, in the Anglican church. And then we have these other parts that are like pretty awful where these people who were oppressors and were um, and put in stained glass, you know, to this day are, are also part of our whakapapa. And it's, it's something big to grapple with. Um, and so um, the, the last kind of, the point I wanted to kind of bring it home to was we were, over this past weekend, we were up in um, Ngatiawa and we were, we were kind of touching on the five marks of mission. And I guess that's where I wanted to kind of hone in on. Um, and that the, the, I wanted to kind of talk about the fourth um, mark of mission, which is um, to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind, and to pursue peace and reconciliation. And um, it's, it's interesting to think that, um, that that is also another complex part of our whakapapa, where actually the Anglican church, like, buys in heavily to this kaupapa, and it's like, it is like the five marks of mission are like a big part of the worldwide Anglican communion's like outlook on how to do mission. And so I'm going to read that out again, um, and I guess my, my, my hope and prayer and challenge is to think about how we can be part of building a more just church, a more uh, a church that wants to uh, reconcile, a church that wants to um, pursue peace and reconciliation for all people, right? And so why don't we be still for a moment um, before we pray. So God, would you make us more into the image of Jesus? Make us people who want to transform unjust structures. Make us people who want to challenge violence of every kind and to be people who pursue peace and to be people who pursue reconciliation for all people.